Happy New Year, everyone. This is your host, Drew Lieberman, and welcome to the Sideline Hustle podcast. Episode 15 of the podcast is a collection of the best rants and sound bites from the previous 14 episodes. Everything from our most thoughtful and informative opinions to the most outrageous stories organized in chronological order from episode one on. I hope you guys enjoy this. After the new year, we will have a great episode about bowl games and playoff football, followed by part three of the Coaching Carousel series, which explores what it's like getting fired and what the first priorities are after taking a new job. Thank you guys for listening. I hope everyone has a happy new year, and I will see you next week. everybody this is your host drew lieberman what up this is gary nova your everyday quarterback and you are now listening to the sideline hustle podcast here's two guys one guy who coached in the big ten and one guy who played in the big ten talking about their experiences and i'm like you did do a good job of getting rid of the football i mean yeah sometimes i got rid of it to other teams right 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 from the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach. I would sleep in the facility in, in the back of a room where it was really dark and cold. And my air mattress had a hole in it. So it would start full. And by now, again, you get three hours of sleep. Right. So at 4 a.m. it'd be full or 3 a.m. it'd be full. By 6 a.m., I would be laying yeah. on the ground, on the hard <laughs> ground, every day. And I had no money or no time to go get a new one. Because by the time right. we finished up, Walmart was closed no at doubt. 11 o'clock. No so doubt. I had no time. I did that for like three weeks. It was the most miserable thing. We had this kid, Joe Volano, whose father was an All-American in Maryland. This is Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at the University of Maryland. He was a two-star high school player. And I knew his father. I, you know, I coached his father when I was a graduate assistant in Maryland. You know, he came in in one-on-ones and we had him against the, the number one five-star offensive lineman we were recruiting and who ended up going to Stanford and starting five years at Stanford. Joe whipped his butt every time he went one-on-one. So I offered him a scholarship. Gloria, they're taping this, okay, hon? <laughs> so, um, you know, when I offered him a scholarship, you know, a lot of people got upset. A lot of coaches said, you know, why are we offering this kid? I said, well, hell, you know, he just beat the top prospect we have as offensive line four, four or five times in a row. And then Joe, we, you know, he, we, we signed him in first two years. He didn't play because he hurt his shoulder. And I told his father, I'm feeding this kid. When's he going to start playing? Hell, the next spring we couldn't block him. And he ended up being an All-American. He's playing for the Atlanta Falcons right now. Talk to me kind of how your perspective has changed. You know, maybe like, well, take yourself back to when you were 17 getting recruited through what you thought when you were G8 Rutgers and, and uh, how your just perspective on the, the camp process overall, how it's changed and what, and what you think about it. It's completely different from when I went through and, and, you know, back in the early to mid 2000s. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep, former quarterback for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and the Seattle Seahawks. You would go to a camp and there would only be one or two kids that they were really locked in on and, and you would kind of get a private workout like i was at boston college in 2002 and matt ryan and me threw in the stadium for about an hour just him and me just you guys. and that was it like yeah. there was no like special group it was like us that was that was it yeah. you know and the social media aspect wasn't involved there was no guy who worked for rivals telling everyone 
you know, through social media who was at the camp. Right. So it, there was a little bit of privacy to it. So, you know, I remember it wasn't me, but one of my friends had committed somewhere already and he went to another college camp and the school he was committed to didn't even know. So it was just different and back then. Uh, you can't do that yeah. now. It's just it's yeah. just different. So you go from that as a player to working as a GA and seeing what the camp is. A camp is a production. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's an orchestrated production. And the amount of work and details that go into it to operate, especially with these camps, these one-day camps, it's it's an assembly line. It's about trying to get as many reps and get as, as much production in a short window of time so they can go on and go to the next one. So, you know, thinking about... You know, 400 kids in a camp, you got 65 quarterbacks and you got 45 yards of space. Yeah. How the hell do you organize all that? You know, and, and so as a GA, you see that and you learn that. And, you know, like we were talking about a little bit before, when when a coordinator or position coach tells the GA, hey, you're running this, you know, organize it, set it up. It's an interview. Yeah, so yeah. you got to do everything you can to make it, you know, function and operate yeah. the best that you can. Well, I had this kid, Josh Allen. Boy, I just gave a whole lecture to my staff that we weren't going to take any more running backs. We had too many running backs. And then we went out, and I fell in love with this kid at practice. He went to Roosevelt High School, which is right down the street from us. So I came in in the afternoon. I said, I know what I said, but we're taking this kid, you know. And he ended up being, you know, he got hurt, but he ended up being a four-year starter for us. And then the other kid uh, played at West Virginia, um, running back, uh, Steve Slayton. Steve Slayton. Yeah, he was great. Wow. He committed to me, and uh, because we had so many running backs, I didn't take him. It was the worst mistake I ever made. And he had no offers, no scholarship offers. Uh, he was a really smart kid. He ran like, you know, sub 4-5 for us in camp. I mean, he passed it. His tests were great. And I was stupid. I mean, I just made a dumb mistake. And, uh, and after that, I just said, you know, God only made so many kids that could run real fast and had good grades. He'll play somewhere for you. You know, never pass on a kid like that. My first preseason at Rutgers, you know, so you, you were the starting quarterback, Ralph yeah. was the offensive coordinator, and it was probably like day 12 of preseason. It's like, it's been 95 degrees grind. for five straight days, right? Grind. We're in the middle of the grind. This is my, really my first experience with a division one preseason. So yeah. like, I'm ready to work, but it's still more work than I ever could have expected. <laughs> like I'm literally sleeping two hours a night. Like yeah. I'm just grinding and miserable at that. Like, I'm like, <laughs> we haven't played a game yet. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing like there, there's nothing not, I'm fun about no, it. No, like I'm, I'm learning a lot and, and I feel like this is awesome, but like I, there's nothing to show for it yet. Yeah. So I, and I'm just getting my ripped all the time. Like if you remember, I have to do all these install pictures and I'm 23 years old, never yeah. really coached before. And I'm drawing up the whole offense. Every single install is like, and Ralph at times, especially when he was tired, wasn't the best communicator. And so I'd go into his office and be like, coach, how did you want this play? Do you want it like this or like this? He might get frustrated, be kind of vague in his details. I'd take my best guess. The next day we'd show it on the board and that would be wrong from what he wanted and he'd be ripping me in front of the whole team. Like, hey, when are you gonna figure this out, kid? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're up the whole meeting. <laughs> and you turn around and look at me in the back and just start laughing at me. I'd be like, oh man. So he's just ripping me, right? And I can't get anything right. We're out there in practice, it's like day 12, it's hot as hell, and we're doing a screen drill. Mm -hmm. And it's a screen where like the back has to chip the DN and then yeah. settle outside the tackle. And I'm playing DN for the drill. And he's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna sit behind the quarterback and point the direction I want you to go. <laughs> and so Ralph is sitting there behind you and he's just like wagging his finger in all these different <laughs> directions. And I don't really know what he's trying to tell me. I'm like, what? where do you want me to go? So again, I just, I take my best guess. And like, it looked like he had his finger going outside and then back in. So I'd run out and then redirect and come back in. He'd be like, what the f are you doing? That's not what I want. 
And like literally probably seven reps in a row, he would motion his finger and I did the wrong thing seven times in a row. He's like, what is wrong with you? You need to figure this out. And, and so you had gone a couple times and I failed to whatever, do what he wanted. So the whistle blows, we got like two quality reps and that's it. And he's like, Andrew, you really could up a wet dream. You, you ruined the whole practice. So I'm just feeling down as possible, right? We go yeah. break the team. We go back to the locker room. We got like a half hour before we watch film. So I'm sitting there like so depressed. And I'm like, all right, I need to pick me up. So I decide I'm gonna go hit up my ex-girlfriend from college. Reach out, we're talking a little bit. And on that night, I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna send her two Rutgers t-shirts. Like I'm big time working at Rutgers. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna send her some gear. So I go into my locker and I take out like two t-shirts, put them in like a little manila envelope, I send it out. Uh -huh. The next three days is just, just as brutal. Getting ripped, still not getting anything right, still haven't figured it out. But every day I'm coming running off the practice field, hoping for a text, like, oh, I got your package, thank you. So eventually like three days later, I run off the field. I'm like, right, I have a text from this girl, like three texts. And she's like, oh, thank you so much for the package, like so thoughtful. I'm like, oh great, like did you like the t-shirts? She's like, uh, yeah, but like did you wash them before you sent them to me? Because they smelled like that throw them out. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yo, you gotta yeah. be kidding me. She <laughs> She's like, they smelled so bad, I had to throw them out. I could smell them through the package. Oh, man. So after all that, man, I still couldn't do anything right. Probably like they had been washed and they yeah. just like, you know how that shit never. Yeah, never, classic. I don't yeah. even know what kind of soap they use. Right. But just, they the, don't clean the up. No soap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no soap. <laughs> Coach, going back to when you were you were installing the situations like goal line, short yardage, third down, red zone. What what did you think the most important was? Because I remember um, at Rutgers, I had this quote actually written down. I remember you installed goal line on the first day of contact, which I don't think is a traditional thing. And I remember you saying in a meeting, you're like, you know, it's just such a comfort knowing that our guys are going to execute on the goal line, you know, on the three yard line when it's time to score. So I want to install this on day one. Here's the, here's the, the reason I did that. Okay, I always did it the first day of, of scrimmage because everybody's fired up on the first day. They're dying to hit. Everyone been you know going three days without pads. Well, if you're in goal line, the contact is going to be in a very short area. So I thought you had less chance of getting hurt in the goal line situation. I always made it competitive. So whoever lost ran. You would do what? You'd have like seven plays and if the offense scored four times, they won. And if the defense stopped them no, four times? I put the ball on the four yard line, they get four downs, you know? Oh, I got you. Okay. And then you play the situation. And normally the offense wins the first time you do that. So defense lost, so they had a run. It was really funny. The first time I did that at Maryland, my first year, it turned out it was like a Saturday, like midday. And they got to run gases. And there's about eight of them that are just jogging. They're not running. So I just said, hey, I said, man, it's a beautiful day. I got nothing to do this afternoon. But until we start running, I'm not going to start counting. <laughs> so they must have run, I don't know. They were on like 10 and I hadn't started counting yet. You know, I said, we're going to be out of here all night. I said, there's a price to losing. So E.J. Henderson, who was my middle linebacker, and he's kind of an introverted guy, you know, he didn't say a whole lot. All of a sudden, I saw him go up to all the guys that weren't running. I don't know what he said to him. I just, I don't know what he said to him. But the next time we ran, they were running full speed. And I said, there's a leader right there. Right, and, and that's exactly what you were looking to develop by doing that, right? Yeah, and then a lot of those guys quit but didn't want to run. It's easy to quit. I don't find out who wants to, who wants to fight. 
the guy who I've talked to you a lot about, Anthony Campanelli, coaches at Boston College, who, who's the best coach I've ever met. He he was talking to me about the importance of conditioning. If you're not conditioned, the minute you get tired, you become you become weak. If you're not conditioned and the game is on the line and you're at all tired, your brain isn't even capable of focusing on the job at hand or how to execute your route, how to beat this guy. Whatever your job is, your brain isn't even capable of focusing on because all it's focused on is like it all it's focused on is breathing. Think about what happens when someone's got their hand around your neck and you can't breathe. Like like you you succumb to everything. You become completely soft, completely unable to fight back. Like you you lose all the stuff that makes you a good football player when all you're focused on is breathing. Like you'll you'll do anything to get that air back and you're not thinking about the task at hand and there's something to be said for conditioning after practice and having a team that's in shape and never has to worry about getting gassed during a game. As soon as they can find somebody that's as good as he is and makes less money than he does, he's on the bus. You know, that's the way it is. I mean, so, I mean, it's cold, hard. That's the way it is. It's about salary cap and production. As long as you're producing and you make a good number, you're good, you know. But if you don't produce and you and and someone else does and they got they're cheaper than you, you're gone. So it's a very competitive situation. You got to be ready to go every single day you're there. You know. My only advice to anybody going into pro football: you go in there and don't have any friends because every guy's out to get your job. You compete every single day and everything you do. Don't worry about being one of the boys. You'll be one of the boys if you win a position. That Rodney Harrison that's on TV and all the time, he, he was like that. He's a tough ass now. He was. He was. But he wouldn't do any of the, um, the hazing. He wouldn't sing a song. I even did a rap song. That, you know, I tell you, let's do this one time. They won't be bugging my ass anymore. So I put together the, the song. I could always rhyme things pretty good. So I put the road to the Super Bowl by the name of my rap. I came out on the stage and I had to turn my hat sideways, you know. And they start going, and Billy Ray Smith, his wife, was a TV person. They taped the damn thing, and it was on TV. But you know what? They don't, those guys didn't bother me one bit from there on out. This is when you were a rookie coach in the NFL? Yeah, they make everybody do everything, you know. Rodney didn't do anything. He wouldn't, he wouldn't get up and sing. He wouldn't do anything. So we're playing the Giants in Germany. And they went and got him in about three o'clock in the morning, beat the hell out of him, took him downstairs, put him in the lobby on a chair, taped him stark naked in the chair in the lobby of the hotel and left him there. <laughs> I said, Ronnie, all you had to do was sing there. <laughs> was there a training camp you remember that you felt like you had a great training camp and it, and it translated into a great season? I think my senior year. This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback. Uh, Coach Friesen had a lot to do with that. You know, we had a great spring, great summer program, and then going into training camp, you know, our senior class really, you know, gelled together, was really leading the team. The younger guys were bought into what we were doing. It was our first year in the Big Ten. It was a lot of excitement. And, um, you know, that was really my best year because, you know, Coach Friesen put a lot of stress on the quarterbacks of knowing what you're doing, put a lot of stress on being as good as you can be in practice. You know, I really think that my senior year was my best year at Rutgers, and it's not a coincidence because I had mm -hmm. a great preseason, I had a great summer. Everything that just led into that was just a snowball effect. How did Ralph, do you, you feel like, shape that for you? Like what, what effect did he have on you? Yeah. You could just see his mentality. Like, he's almost a perfectionist. He's so detailed and all that. So that really translated to me. I got to try to stay up with him. I got to try to know what he's talking about. I want to kind of be on the same page as him. 
And when he has such a high level, you know, for a guy like me, even in my senior year, I really didn't even know how to study film that well. Like, you know, I, I kind of had a, an idea of, you know, my little tricks that I used to do. But, you know, with him, it was like he knew everything. So, you know, that's something that I try to just like stay with him. If I threw a ball to somebody, you know, it was right in front of him, he'd be like, ah, you know, it could be better. He was always on me, always on me. And that really pushed me to, to get the best out of me. He always used to tell you like, hey guys, playing for me in practice is gonna be harder than playing in the games because I'm gonna put so much stress and so much pressure on you that translate to better game performances. Absolutely, I think, you know, in the, in the periods that we had, it was, it was never something to make me feel comfortable. It was always, you know, pressure or it was always a look that, you know, the team might've gave once, but you know, it's a tough look or, mm -hmm. It was just always something that made me feel uncomfortable because at, the, at that level, if you can't do, if you can't execute a, a basic play, you know, you don't have any chance, right. you know? So he made me feel uncomfortable in practice every day. So that when the game came, you know, when that certain situation popped up, you know, I've already seen it eight times. A lot, I think everybody appreciated that. You know, I mean, while I was going on, the linemen might not appreciate yeah, yeah, it. You know, they're yeah. dying, sweating, receivers, everybody yeah. dying, sweating. But, you know, when you win, you know, and that's when you look back and you say, wow, you know, I was really prepared. We saw this look 10 times and, you know, we made the adjustment. We hit the hot route. We picked up the blitz. We did this. And, you know, that's all in the preparation and practice. And that's what uh, he really instilled in us. Shafar Williams said to me after my first year, he said, Coach, I don't think there's anything we hadn't covered. And he, he said that after two of days. You know what I'm saying? So the kids felt better about, you know, what we had done. I think that's always a positive when they go into the season feeling like they're pretty well prepared. You know, I can remember my first game at, at Maryland. We were playing North Carolina. Hadn't beaten North Carolina in about six years. And they were ranked, they had Julius Pepper. They had about five guys that went in the first or second round. That was a good team, yeah. Yeah, and uh, their first play from scrimmage, the guy ran 80 yards. So the first play of the game, he goes 80 yards. You know, I could see our guys going. You know, the defensive coordinator looked at me. I said, what the hell are you looking at me for? We got 59 more minutes to go, you know. <laughs> and, and then uh, what happened was, and I, and I had emphasize this to our kids and win a workout so we were going to win the first game on conditioning and we did we kind of warmed down and as the game went on i think we ended up winning the game by 20 to 7. we just kept pounding them at the end and so i, I and i told the kids after the game i said we won this game in february we didn't win it this last couple of weeks we won it then because we had a mindset and that's why i think you know you you don't just prepare for the first game in the last 10 days. You know, it's a process. I mean, it goes the whole year. And uh, you've got to have your kids ready both physically and mentally. And, you know, if you think you're going to get ready for the first game in, in the last week of the of preseason, you're, you're in for a big shot. I mean, that's not going to happen. As a, as a college football player, as a quarterback, you've got to be mature beyond your years. Yeah. You, you've got to you got to grow up. And I always remember, like, my mom and dad saying, like, why doesn't anything ever bother you? Like, because it didn't. I, I just didn't let those things negatively affect me. Now, I, I had a great support system. I had a great uh, locker room with teammates who I, you know, trusted and loved and believed in, and they believed in me. Um, I, I did speak with a sports psychologist, which was the best thing that I ever did. I wish I had really? done it earlier in my career because they make light of a lot of things and that makes a lot of sense. When did you and, start doing that? Uh, when I was a junior. I would I would suggest any college athlete that struggles at all on the field with being able to move on, to do anything, to, to talk to a sports psychologist like that because it's not, it's not that you have an issue or a problem. They're helping you uh, to be able to figure out how your mind works and how to move forward mm -hmm. or how to get to the next play right. quicker. Um, That's Because everyone does. But yeah. how do you do it quicker? Right. And, 
Uh, I talked with Dr. Charlie Marr, who, who works with LeBron, um, works with the Cleveland Indians and then the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then consults for a bunch of different professional programs um, and organizations, and it was the best thing I ever did in my life. So uh, when I spoke with him, you know, when I heard my name booed on the field, it was GRA. And for me, it was get, read, act. Get the play from the sideline, read the defense, act on it. Keep it that simple. And so you and would just, you would hear booze, you'd be GRA, GRA, yeah. GRA. Even, yeah. even not even with booze, after a great play. Yeah, GRA. Because you, know, you never see the ball completed in college because you're always on the ground, but the cameras <laughs> always disappear. Yeah. Yeah. So I throw a dig right to Kenny Britt, and when we're at home, if it was complete, there were you roars. Just hear that, right. if you you're would right. know. Right. If it was quiet, it was incomplete. Yeah. And, and you just know that. So you're on your back. And there's cheers, and I'd just be telling myself, all right, GRA, GRA, let's go, next play. That's cool. So, so those types of things help you build mental, mental toughness. Uh, I think the off-season program that you go through as a college football player helps you build mental mm-hmm. toughness. And then ultimately, it's the coaching staff's job to make sure their players are mentally tough enough to handle the situations. And I, I remember my redshirt freshman year during spring ball, Coach Ciano, for whatever reason, that day was my day. And every player kind of had a day. That day was my day. He said everything from, you know, me sucking in high school to, you know, <laughs> the only reason why I was, you know, here was because I went to Bosco and they were trying to get other players, you know, from Bosco yeah, yeah. to, you know, nothing seriously personal, but trying to break you mentally. And, yeah. and that, that's, that's to me what college football, what makes good players great, what makes great players you know the best and what what makes you know good players average is where's your where's your ability to be mental tough mentally tough when the situation calls for mm-hmm. it. I, I remember one of the first conversations me and Gary had when we started recording this podcast was we talked for like 20 minutes about signaling plays versus using the wristband. And that was the biggest thing we concluded. And, and I thought something you were great at was that during games, you would make small little adjustments and all we had to do was change the signal, but no one knew there was a big difference. Whereas with the wristband, if you wanted to make one adjustment, you had to cross off the whole play on the wristband, find a fine tooth Sharpie, and then write the play in on the Sharpie under a new number. And if it was sweaty, it would start to smear or the guy couldn't read it. Like, like wristbands just caused so many more problems. Gary, what, what was what was your kind of thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of, of the wristbands. I mean, I guess because I don't really know any better because that's what we had done for three years. But um, definitely the signals were, were great. I think it just kept you locked into the game. Um, you know, obviously, I think I missed some during the season, but I definitely missed way more with the wristbands because it was written one way. You had to flip it on your own. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, things are going flying around. A lot of things are moving around. The font is like eight font. Yeah. You know, it's tiny font. There's 115 plays on it. And I remember for me as a GA, my job when I was typing the wristband up, because the year after you left, Coach, we used the wristband with Ben, and I would have to highlight every word that could potentially be flipped in yeah. red. So, like, if it was right, that had to be in red. If it was, like, a protection where you could flip it the other way, that had to be in red. And, like, the quarterback, if I happen to not highlight one word, well, all of a sudden you don't flip it and the whole play is, is screwed up. Yeah. And I remember a couple times in halftime when we had the wristband, like you said, you know, if there was a play that they might have wanted to run, like, mid-first quarter, we couldn't do it. They would have to put it on the wristband at halftime. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe that play could have got us a big play for a touchdown or first down or whatever, and we couldn't run it because it wasn't on the card. Yeah. So, you know, wristband, I think well, it was great because we just signaled everything in. We had we had a million signals, and, you know, we made them ourselves. Yeah. So we knew everything because yeah. Coach let us make them. So we kind of just played with them all day long, trying to figure out, you know, what it was, and we did them every day before the game to be on the same page. 
Yeah, it used to frustrate the hell out of me, and you knew this, Andrew, because you know, we, I never knew where the hell I was going to practice on the practice field. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One, one day we'd be in one end zone. It was hard to do, know what drills you could do, but how much space you had. You that know? that often gave me an opportunity to coach a little bit because I would get to the to that area of the field ahead of you, and you just tell me to start the drill. Well, that wasn't hard to do, but I mean, <laughs> but I've had the whole fields laid out, and you know I had them numbered, and then I had an A, a B, or a C. A was to the left side, B was to the middle, and C was to the right side. So if you were in three A, kind of knew where you were. What other things stood out to you about Coach Paterno's practices? It would always be interesting, like when we were in a team drill or he came over to watch one-on-ones or something and like something just really bugged him. What's up, guys? This is Sean Stanley, defensive line coach at Wesleyan, former Penn State defensive lineman. He would finally like get involved, grab a guy by the helmet, yell so everybody could hear him, like to let everybody know that like he was displeased with something. I think the biggest thing that will always stick with me is one time we were in one-on-ones. We had a senior walk-on that, again, I don't blame him. He was trying to earn a spot. He was trying to kind of show the coaches what he could do. Me as a freshman, I'm like, I'm just happy to be here. I kind of don't know who this guy is or whatever, like, the, and everything. So he pushed me out of the way, like, no, I'm taking this rep. During one-on-ones, I'm like, all right, go ahead, buddy. He, he puts his hand in the ground, and uh, Coach Returner's sitting right there, and he blows his whistle, and he stops the whole drill, and he's just like, I want the good guys in. Get him out. I want the good guys in. And everybody's just looking around like you feel so bad for this guy. Like he's just trying to prove himself. And I don't think Coach Returno meant anything like awful by it. Like he wasn't trying to like embarrass the guy. Like he just he didn't want to see that guy go against the second team (laughs) off the tackle. So he's like, get him out of there. And everybody's kind of like standing there, like, what do we do? Just move out the way. So then that guy stand up, like go take my turn, everything like that. But. That was just one of the funniest things. That is so good. Your Joe Pop impression is so on point. Yo, that is going to be the intro to your episode here. Maybe to the whole practice episode. (laughs) What the good guys in? When we got out of passing period, then every day I did an eight-minute blitz drill. No script on this. My offensive coaches hated it. You talking about like blitz pickup? Yeah, so we went... It's kind of like what we did in two minutes. They're going to blitz you, okay? Well, our co- the offensive coaches didn't like it because, especially going against Don Brown, who had all these exotic blitzes, they, they didn't think it helped them to get ready for the game, you know? And I said, if your protections are good and you know your protections and you have an answer for everything, what the hell difference does it make? But you have to go full speed to run it. So every time we did it, we'd get 12 reps in eight minutes. And we'd go maybe eight, four, you know, eight with the first team, four with the second. And invariably, as a head coach, if there were six good plays for the offense and six good plays for the defense, I'd probably be happy. More stuff came up on that as far as sight adjust and hot. And I imagine like blitz indicators too for the quarterback. Yeah, and what, what really happens is when you get good at handling the blitz, it's like handling press. If you can beat press, there's a certain confidence. Come on and press our ass. we're going to light exactly. it up. And you take so much control of the game. You know, you dictate so much of the game when that's the case. And it was really funny because our line coach came down to Charleston about 
about three or four years after I left Maryland. And we were having lunch, and he said to me, you know, and, and this guy wouldn't say a bad thing about anybody. He said, you know, Coach, I hate to tell you this, but I really miss Blitz Drill. So I started laughing. I said, why is that? He says, we only walk through blitzes right now. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, there's no way to handle a blitz unless it's coming full speed. Those bullets are live then, and you really find out how fast you have to react. So we did that every day. I did a lot of crazy things. You know, I, we used to have a goal line run. I took the linebackers and put them on the one-yard line. I took the back and put them on the five-yard line. And they had to run between five yards to score. No blocking. My philosophy was, we get to the one-yard line, you shouldn't need a block to get in. E.J. Henderson, my middle linebacker, he hit Bruce Perry, my starting tailback. Picked him up and drove him back about ten yards and deposited his ass. <laughs> <laughs> And the coaches thought I was nuts, but you know what? Bruce Perry started to turn out to be a pretty good back because he started lowering his shoulder and getting down in there. I was trying to coach toughness, too, you know, and, and competitiveness. I remember we were playing South Florida at the Buccaneers Stadium, and it wasn't even that packed, but it was like an ESPN game, but their student section was packed. It was right behind the end zone. So we got the ball. It was like the first possession, and uh, we were right behind, like right in front of the student section. And I remember, like, I think we had, like, a false start because we didn't have any silence cadence. Like, we were just going off of my voice. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And guys are like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So we get off the sideline. And coach is like, he's like, what happened out there? Like, what like, what was going on? And I was like, coach, they said they can't hear me. He's like, they can't hear you. He's like, there's, like, 30,000 people in the stadium right now. He's like, what do you mean they can't hear you? He's like, 30,000 people is nothing. And I'm like, coach, we're in front of the student section. He's like, ah, I don't give a He's like, you gotta scream it way louder. He's like, there's no way. He's like, 30,000 people. He's like, they get more people in high school games out here. He's like, you tell me they can't hear you? But I'm like, yo, it was loud. It was loud, like, It yeah. was loud. Dude. Yeah. The, the big thing I think, man, for Rutgers that they could do, I think another thing that makes them a hidden gem is obviously their proximity to New York City. And like you talk about like the next closest school is what, like a Syracuse, a UConn, they're two hours, two and a half hours away. They're the only BCS school within driving distance in New York City. Like, I remember when we were there, we would say, oh, yeah, we're New York City's football team. We put, like, a billboard up in Times Square. But, like, that only goes so far. you got to give the people of New York a reason to care. And my idea that I've always thought they should do at Rutgers is start a football camp, like a, a football camp for the youth in every borough of New York City. And get all your players up there, all the coaches, all these ex-players, all these guys that can be role models, especially fine kids who made it out of the Newarks and the Trentons, like of inner city areas. Get them in front of these kids and talk about, just be role models for the kids. Teach them some football and let these kids in bad neighborhoods know you can use football as a way to escape. Like because football, there's not a lot of fields in inner city neighborhoods, it's, it's hard to access. There's a perception, I'm sure it's a reality for a lot of places that they can't travel to go play football, but a, a means of starting a football camp, starting some sort of culture where, hey, you guys can get good grades, and if you're a great football player, you can find some place to play and use that as a means of escape. And you do that in Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan. You do that everywhere in New York City, and you give back. You give a 1,000 T-shirts out, and you give back to that community. You immediately have four or 5,000 Rutgers fans right there. For sure. And then you do that the next year, and then they start telling, man, like, Jimmy's all motivated now because the Rutgers players came and, and really like you know gave him something to believe in, and you really make an impact in that community. No other school in the country, football program in the country, is even capable of driving there and making an impact in the yeah. community. You show up, you make an impact there, you give back to the kids, and you create this a reason to like Rutgers football. Not because you again, right now you can't bank on whether or not you're gonna win games. Like it might be a long time before they win games, nah, yeah. but you can do all that stuff where it's like, man, well, I really love Rutgers because they've done something for me. I'm gonna root for them regardless, win, loss, whatever. You gotta claim New York City. Like it's the only thing. 
thing you have that separates you, really. Like if you if you think of a reason, like, why am I going to go to Rutgers over Michigan over Ohio State? If you're talking about what's going to separate you, it's you're changing the culture, but you have access to this city and New York City loves us. And, you know, if New York City's hyped about Rutgers, it, it changes the whole atmosphere of the program. You know, I always looked at football as a learning experience, not just as a, a football player. I, I, I would hope that our players were developing life experiences that were going to help them over in life itself, you know, because every day is not a great day on the football field. And when you get into the real world, it's the same way. It's how, how can you overcome these things? So a lot of the things that you're dealing with from a day-to-day standpoint, I think that's where the, the education really comes in for an, a college athlete that the normal students don't get. I mean, they have their regular life, it, you know, no doubt. No doubt that there's more stress, there's more to, to go to class and to, to be a student and still be a major college football player or a basketball player. You're, you're working your way through school. You're earning that money. And it is not an easy existence. But what you're learning and to do that, that a normal student should make you a better competitor when you go out into the real world and have to compete against that individual that didn't go through the hardships and the competitiveness that you were doing while you were in school. And I I really believe that that's what helps make people successful in life. Give me like a a name drop so we can use for the intro. Just something like, yo, say like, hey, what's up? It's Leonte Carew. Um, do it in your rapper voice, bro. Yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we're about to put your song on the podcast, Brody. Please don't do that. <laughs> Leonta got a song for real, Dan Marino. Chill, 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 bro. Don't, don't let the people know about that. <laughs> nah, we're going to edit that out for sure. I don't know. It might be on there. <laughs> but no, give me a, just give me a real quick. Like, be like, hey, what's up? Uh, you know, it's Leonte Carew, and you listen to the Sideline Hustle or something like that. All right, I got you. I'm going to finesse it real quick. Yo, what's up? It's Leontay Carew, Miami Dolphins, Rutgers legend, and you're listening to the Sideline Hustle. You're nice, yo. You're still dumb ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I've really known him from wearing V-necks and playing sharks to, you know, being sponsored by Adidas on the Miami Dolphins. I want to talk about, like, more about Bosco and, like, what we kind of went through, you know, together and what made that team... So uh, just just talk about like I mean obviously Anthony Campanelli, uh, coach at Boston College. He coached us in high school. Um, you know he's probably had one of the most impacts on both our lives, right, Lee? I mean you could say that, right? I mean, absolutely. Uh, mine too, to, yeah, for the record. Man, so mine too, yo. He's somebody who's in, involved in this. Uh, Coaches just you talk to him for five minutes and he has that impact on you. You just feel his passion for the game and he cares about all his players. So just. Real quick, if you could just talk about like, remember like the summer workouts or like the off season weight room, like what like when he was just building that mentality, like how do you like still like carry that stuff up today, like in the NFL, like everyday mentality of you know being tough and all that stuff. Um, you know my biggest thing is is with that whole thing is like, you know I, I look at Bosco, I look at even college, and I look at the NFL is like. You know, everybody comes from a different background. You know, like when I got to Bosco, you know, I was a kid from Edison. A lot of people were from Bergen County, you know, and all the different counties in in New Jersey. Then when you get to Rutgers, you got guys from different states and 
and you know uh then you get to nfl and you guys you got people from all over and it's like you know what, what coach ant taught me at such a young age is just like you know you you'll earn people's respect by just being a grinder and being tough and working hard and then holding other people accountable and and but when you when you start with yourself first then other people will follow and then you're able to lead and you're able to do things differently and when i got to bosco you know i could i can honestly say i was i was a 13 year old 14 year old like you know little boy and, and coach Ant made me make a decision every single day that you were you were either going to get better and you were going to be tough or you were going to you were just going to quit and and he made quitting actually not an option. And to this day, you know, there's, there's times where you wake up and you're like, you know, man, I don't feel like working out or man, I don't feel like going to practice. But then you think of like people like Coach Ant, who's just, you just seen the, the mentality that he just instilled in you as a 13 year old little boy that you just, it just clicks in your head and you're like, I'm still that same kid that just grinded every single day and got me to this point uh, of where I'm at. You know, I, I actually, you know, people talk about, you know, your parents and teammates and, and, and things like that, that that helped you get to this level. But, you know, Coach Ann played a humongous role in my life, huge, 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 huge role in my life to get me where I'm at because of all the things he instilled in me as a little kid that I still kind of, you know, carry over to this day, you know, just hard work, dedication, just mental toughness and just, you know, caring about others. That That's my whole whole philosophy. You know, if, if I'm going to grind, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for my teammates. I'm, I'm trying to make my family proud and all my teammates and all my friends proud as well. And, and that's something that Coach Ant just, just always instilled in me as a kid. And, and uh, you know, a guy who just truly loves football, you know, every single day, you know, when you when you stepped on that field at Bosco, he just made you he, he made you want to quit. But at the same time, he also put it in you where you weren't going to quit because you didn't want to let anyone down. And I was blessed enough to have him at Rutgers and also have him at Bosco, too. So that was just probably the coolest thing ever. One thing I also want to talk about is um, Coach Toll and, uh, you know, kind of how he's had an impact on you. And I mean, obviously I know, but just for people who don't know, I mean, like for me, Coach Toll, like he has a lot to do with the mentality that I still have like every day as far as not making excuses and just being tough and outworking the guy in front of you. When I think of Coach Toll, I just think of, a like you said, a guy who pretty much instills in you like not making excuses and, you know, not feeling sorry for yourself. But I, when I think of Coach Toll sometimes, I think of life after football. Beating that guy out if, if, if you, whatever your career wants to be one day, you know, whether, you know, when my football career is over and, and and I have dreams of, of being like a sports commentator one day and I'm up against a guy who might be talented or smarter than me or something like that. You know, Coach Toll always made me think of, you know, just outworking the guy, you know, just being prepared and, and waking up before the guy and just, just not letting the guy outcompete you to, to win that job. You know, he was a guy that wasn't afraid to tell you, you know, that he loves you and, and that, you know, he was going to tell you every single day that, you know, he loves you and he's proud of you and, and he just wants, you know, you to be a not only a great football player, but a great man. He was definitely a guy, you know, him and Coach Anna are, are pretty much the same guy. You know, I, I owe them, you know, pretty much the world. You know, they uh, them along with my parents and, and the Yankovic family and, you know, my teammates and friends growing up. You know, they they were they were two guys that, you know, helped me grow up from from being a boy into into a grown man, you know, at such a young age. Lee, you, you mentioned uh, the Yankovic family. If you don't mind real quick, just like kind of summarizing kind of that whole situation. I remember uh, like it was yesterday, I was in a uh, sixth grade in Jersey, actually in the tri-state area, they have this, this show called MSG Varsity. 
And uh, I remember seeing Bosco playing Bergen, like one of the Bosco classic, Bosco Bergen classic football games. And I remember watching him on TV and I see Coach Toe screaming at the refs, screaming at the players and like just seemed so passionate about football and they're on TV. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, uh, I would love to go to a school like that. And I remember I'm telling my mom about Don Bosco and she's like, what, what the heck is a Don Bosco? Like she's, she's laughing at me, not paying any attention to me. And then one day she signed me up for the football camp. And, uh, you know, the football camp is obviously where I met Gary and everybody at. And then I got accepted into the school and I passed the co-op exam and things like that. And now my mom was like, wow, now the, now the difficult part starts. Like, how do I get you to school every day? Uh, when you're a freshman at Bosco, there's, this, there's a cookout, you know, like a barbecue that the parents and the coaches, they all have for you so that the parents and the players, when you're a freshman, could all meet each other. The Yankovic family at the time, they had just moved to Jersey. They're, they're originally from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and they just moved to Jersey, so they barely knew anyone. You know, me and my mom are from Edison, which is like an hour and 15 minutes away, and we barely know anyone. I'm sitting there with my mom and Allison Yankovic, who, who I call my mom to this day, she she's sitting there by herself and and her and my mom kind of just look at each other like hey like let's sit next to each other and they start you know talking and my mom says you know we're from edison it's you know it's an hour and 15 minutes away leonce just got accepted into the school and and allison she says you know we live in ramsey and we're from pittsburgh we barely know anyone either and they start sharing stories with each other and kind of to break the ice between uh the, each other allison goes well if leonce uh once anytime he can he he can stay with us anytime he's tired or anything so you know my mom she wasn't gonna just give me up that easily and uh so from about september to january i would say my freshman year at bosco me and my mom was driving back and forth you know every single day waking up at 4 30 in the morning and, uh, yeah and things kind of got you know a little rough i actually had a meeting with coach uh, nunzio who was the athletic director and offensive coordinator at bosco at the time also coach toll and i was actually going to transfer you know things were just hard you know waking up at 4 30 just the dedication as a 13 year old almost seemed like it wasn't worth it it was just too hard on both of us my mom she 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 remembered the yankovic family and she sent her a phone call sent her a message and and they were speaking on the phone and uh mrs yang goes you know who who am i to mess up a kid's dream it was his dream to go to this school. And it's not like we don't have the space. You know, we would love to have Leontay come stay with us. And my mom started crying on the phone. And from there was history. And, you know, I called them mom and dad. And, you know, they had three kids, three kids of their own, Emily, Mike, and Danny. I called, you know, Mike and Dan, my brother and my sister, my brothers. And, and I call Emily, my sister. And, you know, I still talk to them every single day. And back in 2008, I started staying with them. And, you know, they're still family to this day. Yeah, that's beautiful, bro. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, honestly, that's unbelievable. I mean, obviously, I know the Yankovic family, and I know Mike. You know, they're just they're great people. I think you know that whole school. We were very lucky to go to that school. It was, I mean, I didn't live an hour, fifteen minutes away, but I lived, you know, twenty minutes away. You know, which you know wasn't anything compared to what you had to drive. But some days, you know, everybody was always, you know, if you want to stay here, you can stay with me. You know, we have an extra room. You can stay here, no doubt. You know, sometimes I would sleep over, you'd get rides in the morning, they would always be just very welcoming and, and just very, you know, open arms. 
You know, when you when you start talking about culture, I mean, you know, most people think, well, you, you know, the, the discipline, this and that. But I think culture is, you know, it's, it's everything. I mean, it's how you how you expect your players to act in all situations. You know, I used to tell my wife she did a heck of a job of raising my three daughters because I was hardly ever around. And she said, well, you, you know, you may not have been around, but they knew what, what you expected. And it's the same with your players. You understand what I'm saying? If you have enough trust and enough respect and they know what you expect out of them, then for the most part, you know, they're going to screw up their 18 to 20 year old kids. They'll they'll make a mistake here and then, but they need to learn from that mistake. Now, if they made three mistakes, they were gone. But I usually allowed one or two and and then, you know, they'd have a penalty with it. But, you know, once they served the penalty, it was over and done and let's move on. And most of the kids did that, you know, but if it happened over and over again, no. Then he wasn't learning. So I actually just wrote a paper in my psychology class about the process of building team culture. And I looked at like, actually, you know, I read some like real psychological articles and stuff. And essentially they, they did this study on 10 division one coaches of all sports and, and just talk about how they build culture or whatever. And they, they basically came up with three values, three different types of values that they try to establish. And it's the first is relationship values. And that's your ability to relate to the kids and have them feel comfortable around you. And they were talking about how that is the number one, first, most important value that you must establish because the kids have to trust you and love you and know that you trust them and love them before they're going to buy in. If he doesn't have trust in the coach, then he's not going to play real hard for him or when it gets really tough to lay it on the line, you know, when it's 95 degrees and it's the fourth quarter and you're hurting and it becomes a gut check, a matter of wills, who's going to will to win this game and who's going to give in? Well, the ones that have the trust, you know, they're going to fight harder for you. And then the second one was strategic values, which is like, all right, here, here's the way we're going to run this play. Here's the technique I want you to play with, like the things that are going to help you win games from a strategy standpoint, instilling those values in them. And the third, and they said probably the most influential was behavioral values, which is, you know, having a good attitude, work ethic, carrying yourself a certain way, respect. And they were talking and they basically broke it down into team culture is created through those three, those three sets of values. And then we talk about doing the show. I mean, we're talking about what, what football is all about. Well, yeah, yeah, we we laugh and we joke and we 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 complain about how hard we work. But if we didn't love to coach, we wouldn't be doing this. We're, we're yeah. definitely not doing it for the money. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, this is a passion that we have. And you know, if you really if if you don't have that passion, you really shouldn't coach. I mean, I was the GA for four years. Yeah. You know, four years now, and. You know, I made eleven thousand dollars in my first job in nineteen seventy three and I didn't crack the twenty thousand dollar mark until nineteen eighty. Wow. And so obviously I you know, I wasn't in it for the money. I was in it because I loved it. It was something it was something I just loved to do. And uh, I mean I, I learned something every day. I mean and I coached for forty three years and I learned something every day. You know, you never know everything that you know and there's so many different ways to do things. I think that's I see a lot of these young coaches, they know one way right now. They haven't been around to learn more than one way. And uh you know, the relationship with the kids was always big with me. I just uh, and you know, I loved it as an assistant coach, but you know, I kinda liked it even more as a head coach, uh, because I had a I had a big group of kids and you know, some kids didn't like me and so I didn't like some of them either but i would say 95 percent of them you know i love and i still hear from them and it's and they you know my wife says they're on i don't do facebook but you know they're always talking to me about uh facebook and i went to a wedding this 
this weekend and, and a couple of them were there, you know, so it's, um, you know, it, it's interesting because my son-in-law, you know, he, he told me, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't work 18 hours a day like you did. And, and he was, he was between jobs and, you know, he said, are you worried about me getting a job? I said, no, I'm worried about you getting a job that you're passionate about. I said, because see, me working 18 hours a day, I wasn't work. I never looked at it as work. I looked at it as my, my whole desire was how was I going to win 12 games in a year? I mean, that's, that was what I, my whole focus, my whole goal was. And, you know, everything we did was how were we going to be successful? You know, my early years, I wasn't as successful, but, I, you know, I didn't like losing. So I, I kept working at it and finally got better at it, you know. And, and that's just not X's and O's. It's, you know, how you handle people, how you deal with people, how do you how do you motivate people? How do you motivate a team? You know, I think uh, I think that's one of the things I think I did a pretty good job of. To me, the best motivator I've ever been around is, is Anthony Campanelli. And especially you talk about dealing with a bunch of different personalities. Like, you can think back to that receiver room that he took over. Like, we had all kinds of personalities in that room. I think there's a lot of softness generally in a receiver room that you got to try and beat out of those guys in different ways. And like you said, some guys respond to an ass whooping, some guys don't. But I remember his big thing that I thought always stuck with me was that he truly believed that no matter whether the kid responded to it well or not, he believed in holding kids accountable in front of their teammates. And that, and showing a clip on film and saying, this isn't okay, this isn't how we do things, this isn't allowed, but calling them out in front of their teammates and regardless of who it was. If it was Leonte Carew and he's the best receiver in the country, or he's a walk-on freshman, you do... you. If you're not doing things the right way in practice, I'm going to call you out for it and I'm going to call you out in front of everyone so everybody can see what's not acceptable and everyone can learn from that. And, and I always really respected that that way of going about it. And I think the, the biggest thing that is so unique about Anthony is that he has the ability to absolutely crush you in a meeting or on the field. But then he's got the ability to make you feel like you're his kid. When, when you're done with that, he, he truly, and the reason why he's built for this profession is he truly loves his players. I, I hear stories from past Bosco players that played for him when he was the, either a linebacker coach or the offensive coordinator at Bosco. And he worked those kids harder than they probably ever worked in their lives. And he probably put them through more misery than they've ever been through in their lives. But every one of those kids loves him. And it's the same thing with the players that, you know, he coached when we were at Rutgers together. I mean, those guys love him. And that, you can't teach that. And that, I think that's, that's what separates him from, from a lot of other coaches. I would hire him solely for the ability to get the players to, to love him the way that they, that he loves them. He loves his players. Like, isn't that what coaching is supposed to be about? Like, I feel like that's been so lost in modern day coaching because now there's so many guys who are coaching for a paycheck or coaching to get that next job because there's millions of dollars attached to it now. It's it's not, it, coaching's become less pure because it's not about loving your kids and making your kids better. It's about getting your kid to do something the right way so that he makes your offense look good so that you can get a head coaching job. Flip side is you got to coach him so hard to make sure that he does his job the right way so you don't get fired. Right, exactly. You bring in the, the business aspect of life and death as far as your, your career, it's going to change. And it's unfortunately, it's part of what the world has become in, in this profession. Uh, and it's not right because it takes that purity out of it. But, you know, it's a reality of what it is. You hit the nail on the head, man. Like, he just loves his guys, and that's why, like, he can beat them down and he can destroy them, but, like, in the end, the same way, like you said, like, when your dad is mad at you, you still know he loves you. And There was a demand that you're better than you think you are. My job is to get the absolute best out of you. 
but then I still care about you off the field. Yeah, and that's a great way of putting it of, of why why you demand things of your players because you're you're sitting there and you're looking at their potential and you're saying I see this in you. I'm I'm doing everything I can to get this out of you. It's not always going to be a fun process, but you have to trust what I'm seeing in you and you you have to rise to the expectations I'm demanding. And again, as long as as long as they know that they that you love them, I think I think generally you can accomplish that. You know, I had three girls, so I was always looking at my players as my sons. And I wanted them to be able to gain that advantage because we're we'll get, we're preparing you for the rest of your life. We're not preparing you for the next four years. We're preparing you for the next forty years. And that's how I that's how I looked at coaching football. Yeah, winning is part of that. Learn how to win is part of that. But when you learn how to win on the football field, all of those same traits carry over into real life. I think that kids want to be pushed and want to be held accountable and want it to be hard as long as they understand the purpose behind it and understand why they're doing something. For me, I always try to relate the most difficult times during a football season to the difficulties that kids are going to face later in life and explain to them that this moment is, is preparing them for those challenges down the road when they won't have a choice but, but to fight harder. When times are tough later on and you have a wife and kids and a family depending on you to provide for them, you're not allowed to give in or stop or, or even waste time thinking about slowing down. You just have to work and grind and do everything you can to provide for the ones you love. And I'll be damned if you don't leave my room fully prepared for that fight. As long as this game is played by human beings, toughness and emotion will determine the outcome of every contest. And an individual's capacity for suffering will determine how hard he's willing to compete in order to win. If he's exhausted himself in his preparation, then he'll be equipped with poise when the crucial moments occur in the game that he's been training for. These moments that others perceive to be high stress, that others perceive to be high pressure, poise and cool-headedness are the most sought-after characteristics, as those two traits allow him to execute his job with a clear mind, and that precedes any physical abilities he might have. The game of football and the game of life are built around fighting for what you love. The love and the bond that, that we share in this room is what forces us to show up to practice every damn day without excuse, the same way that the love for your family will one day force you to show up to work every damn day without excuse. Love is what holds us accountable to each other, love is what keeps us disciplined, love is what allows us to endure the pain and the suffering that is necessary to become a champion that refuses to give in, period. That is the single greatest lesson that the game of football can teach a man. Fight for what you love and never give in. Because ultimately, how hard you're willing to fight determines the winners and losers in this life, and that is what we're training for every single day. You know, I think I've found some success being able to motivate guys because there's never any doubt in their mind how much I love them and, and how much I do for them on a daily basis. That's never in question with my players. So once that becomes established in the room, it becomes much easier to, to demand a lot from them because they know that they're getting that back in return from you. They'll run through a wall for you if they watch you sell out for them and know that you really care about them as people and are willing to do anything to help them improve as, as players and, and as young men. And my players to me are, are like my younger brothers in a way. That's kind of how I treat it and their development on and off the field are very important to me. I, I open up to them about my personal life and ask them about their personal life and we all know each other really well so that now when it becomes time to, to push these kids further than they're willing to push themselves, they're not going to question me when we have that type of relationship and they're looking at me like a brother, you're not you're not going to question that. They're going to start to question you when they don't trust you. And I think that if you can prove to guys that you love them, they'll trust you. I got into being a GA because the coach asked me to volunteer coach the 
freshman team. At that time, there was a freshman team. So, you know, once I started doing that, I knew what I wanted to do. I was fortunate to get my uh, master's degree, but uh, the year after I got my master's degree, I had been a GA voluntarily for three years, and um, they talked me into being a graduate assistant for the fourth year with Coach Claiborne, and that's when he paid me 150 a month and uh, no room or board. <laughs> and Frank Beamer was a GA with me, so we both were getting the same thing. Now, he had a wife, and she was working in the athletic department, so she was making a salary, but I had a girlfriend that was supporting me, so... <laughs> It's a little bit different, but (laughs) yeah, so once you know what you want to do, then, you know, it's like any other job. If you enjoy what you're doing, it's really not work. The amount of hours you put in is really irrelevant. You know, it's it's not like your work. And I I keep telling all the players that played for me and even my son-in-law that it's more important you enjoy what you're doing than, you know, doing something just to make money because you can be miserable just doing that. And my thought there is if you like what you're doing, you'll do it well enough to make a good living and, and be very happy with what you're doing. So I think that's why Coach Claiborne always wanted to see. You know, Tommy Groom, who was the running back coach for Coach Claiborne, he told me that Coach Claiborne loves to see guys suffer. He says it weeds out the guys that don't want to coach. And uh, if you can if you can do something other than coaching, then you're probably not meant to be a coach. That's what I, I remember I heard uh, David Cutcliffe speak at the convention a couple of years ago, and he said exactly that. He was like, if you if you can live without coaching, coaching's probably not for you. Yeah, yeah. And David and I are very good friends. And, you know, we're probably very similar in a lot of our thoughts. So. And that's kind of how it is. The, the slow pack is the best. The slow pack's the best. So, so it's preseason and we're meeting. So we used to practice at 10 a.m. We're meeting probably at 8 a.m. Right. And so I'm in the quarterback meeting uh, with the quarterbacks and, and our quarterbacks coach. And he tells me, he's like, hey, I forgot. I have a presentation or something on my flash drive. Can you run to my office to go get it? So I'm jogging down the hall. And all of a sudden, Norris Wilson, our, our assistant head coach, is sitting at the door. And he's like, no, you can't go through here. I'm like, why not? Like, I need something for this meeting, like freaking out, whatever. So I go like downstairs, up and around. And I, I looked the hallway again. And there was three guys with FBI jackets on interrogating like seven, eight, nine, ten of our players. And that ended up turning into a fiasco where like seven of our kids got kicked off the team, right? So that started the controversy. And then and then our starting quarterback and our best player got suspended for the first half of the first game for getting caught drinking. And then it turns out that Coach Flood was trying to change someone's grade and he got suspended. So this all, and this all happened before the season started. So we, <laughs> we win the first game and then come the second game, right after the second game, Coach Flood gets suspended, our head coach, and our best player gets suspended going into the Penn State game. And so it was at that point where we knew our whole, our jobs, our futures were on the line. We needed to go to Penn State in an environment we'd never played in, which you guys have heard on the, the episode nine of the podcast, the noise episode of how raucous that environment was. We've never been in a situation like that. We have no head coach. We don't have our best player. And we had to win that game to save our jobs. Needless to say, we lost. And we come back and we all kind of looked at each other as a staff. We knew that it was an uphill battle for us to keep our jobs. So our O-line coach at the time, all of a sudden, like the next week, I think we're playing Kansas and it's like Wednesday and I just see him in his office. He's putting together this box. Like, he has like this cardboard box. He's taping it up, like putting books and stuff in it. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm slow packing. Our days here are numbered. <laughs> I'm going to take one thing out a day until it's all out of here. They're going to kick us out of here eventually. <laughs> and this guy would go out of his way to find cardboard boxes in the facility and like pack them up with his stuff and once a day, maybe once every other day, he would bring a box of his stuff. When we actually did get fired officially, his office was almost was almost empty. <laughs> but I remember there was like one day where he had 
this box on, it wasn't even like packed up or anything. It was just like a flat box and it was on our staff table for like, for like 10 hours that day, like eight in the morning. And then all of a sudden he comes in at like eight at night. He's like, you see my box? And we're like, yeah, we threw it out. He goes, that box gave me a chance to break even today. That was a good box, perfect size. You really took it away from me. And we're like, what are you even talking about? And I really think that like that, like having a coach on the hot seat and like knowing like, you know, we got to win this game. We're getting fired. Like it, it makes people go crazy. And like he was crazy to begin with, but like every, all of us, like it makes you go nuts when you have zero control over your future. I think that pressure and that stress of having a coach in the hot seat or being in a coaching transition, like really changes people and makes them kind of wacky. And it, it's funny from the coaching perspective because I went through it from the playing perspective when I was with Seattle when Jim Mora was mm-hmm. kind of on the hot seat. What's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep High School, former Rutgers and Seattle Seahawks quarterback. Right. You know, we, we won our first game and then all of a sudden we lost three in a row. And, you know, there comes a point where we got mathematically disqualified from the playoffs. So guys stopped showing up on time, you know, instead instead of training and and getting extra workouts in at seven for the eight o'clock team meeting, they'd show up at 7.55 and kind of roll into the meeting. And that happened for like probably four or five weeks. And then you get to the last two weeks of the season and all of a sudden guys are playing their asses off. I was like, you know, I'm a rookie. I had no idea, you know, what was going on. I was like, what's going on? Talking to Matt Hasselbeck, he's like, guys are playing for their jobs, you know, because the new GM, the new head coach is going to come in. They're going to watch the film. They're going to watch the last couple games, and they're going to want to see guys playing hard. Guys, again, they protected themselves for a couple weeks, and now it's time yeah. to to kind of turn it on because they know that if they don't, they might not be there. So wow. it, it's it's a lot different as a player, and I was naive to it because I had never been through it. Yeah. You know, I'm a 24 year old kid that right. you know figured I had the world by you know balls and everything was going to be great, yeah. and and it wasn't the case. But you lose the locker room or coach more lost locker room guys quit and then there came a point where well now you got to play to save your job mm-hmm. for the next year mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they started playing hard again it, it was interesting it was, a, it was a dynamic that i'd never seen and it was the business aspect of what the nfl is right. you know it was guys protecting their bodies for a bunch of weeks and then guys coming back and making sure that they were going to have a job for the next right. year i want to i want to kind of talk about that whole situation when coach shiano left because i know for me it was nuts because you know we were working out in the weight room uh, just a normal, normal off-season day, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I think one of our players was on a treadmill. He saw it pop up on like a TV in the treadmill. He let everybody know, and the next thing you know, the whole building is lined up in the in the in the training room watching the TV, not knowing what the hell is going on. And I know you have a story about you know the coaches actually being there at Bosco recruiting you. Every single assistant coach, uh, wide receiver coach, running back coach, linebacker coach, DV coach, every single coach is at, at Bosco that day. And we're in the gym, me, Darius, Hamilton, Elijah Shoemate, Yuri Wright, you know, pretty much uh, big time recruits. I was the only guy at the time that was committed. It was about six days before signing day. And uh, they were all in there trying to get the other guys to flip wherever they're going and just convince guys to, you know, eventually come to Rutgers. And I'm in there trying to talk to Darius and Elijah and trying to get them to come to Rutgers. I remember our gym teacher, he, he it pops up on his ESPN app on his cell phone. And he shows uh, Coach Fleck, which would have been my receiver coach at the time. He's like, you guys see this? And it, it says on the ESPN ticker, Coach Yano headed to Tampa Bay. And, and all the coaches, you know, pretty much in the gym, just like their eyes got big. And they just pretty much just start flipping, not flipping out, but they, 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 they jump on the phone. They're calling their wives. 
They're calling yeah. their family. They have no idea what's going on, and I don't know how it works. But all every coach pretty much just left Rutgers, and that I, I was pretty upset because I was the first big recruit to commit. You know, I, I was committed to Rutgers, and I was ready to sign. And it was just hard for me because all the coaches that I built relationships with, I remember a guy like Coach Halfley and Coach Fleck. You know, guys that recruited me that I built relationships with. You know, now that you're telling me they're not going to be there after they promised me all these dreams, it was a little hard. And I remember um, what, which made what made me really stay loyal to Rutgers is is one for the fans and also a guy who actually isn't there anymore. His name was Tim Pernetti. He was the athletic director. He actually personally called me on the phone and said, "Don't worry, Beyonce. You know, you're one of our top recruits." We're gonna call. We're gonna hire a head. I'm gonna hire a head coach that is gonna be great for the program. You know, no worries. And you know, he stuck to his word and he he hired a a, a in staff guy, which was Coach Flood. And the funny thing about Coach Flood is he was the first coach at Rutgers when I was going into my sophomore year at Bosco to Facebook message me saying, "Hey, Leonce, I'm Coach Flood." offensive line coach at Rutgers, you know, you're on our radar. He was literally the first coach to ever message me at Rutgers and, and then he became the head coach, which was which was extremely cool. And then I, I was able to get guys like Darius Hamilton and Steve Wong and Quanzel Lindbergh to all commit to Rutgers and, you know, it was just great. That day was, was crazy. I mean, especially being on campus, you know, guys didn't go to class for two days because we didn't know what was going on. I think, you know, Coach Chiano was such a good recruiter that basically a lot of guys were going, were going to Rutgers just off the fact that they felt like the stability was there. He, he was building a house that was like $2 million. He's been at Rutgers. He, he, he basically built them from, from nothing to having them ranked in the top 25, right. top, um, top, top, top five, five top 10, you know, yeah. top whatever, with, with Ray Rice and Mike, who's also a part of this. And then, you know, kind of just he's telling you that dream that he's not going anywhere. And this is, this is where the program is, was trending up. So everybody kind of wanted to jump on. So when he left, everybody was kind of like, man, what like, what are we here for? We were here for kind of this guy. He's gone. Why do we stay? I think uh, having the confidence, knowing that like Leonte and Darius and all these guys committed was a big reason why I even stayed. Because it was like, all right, like he may be gone, but at the end of the day, it's players that got to go out there and play. And we got a really good, talented class coming in. I think we'll be fine. And that was kind of my mindset going, going forward. Also, shout out to Tim Pernetti, too. I mean, he did a great job with us as a team kind of being in a, as, as a as the head figure and standing in and letting us know constantly what was going on, who he was kind of uh, interviewing. And I think him hiring Coach Flood had a lot to do with, with the, the guys on the team. I think he really felt that the guys on the team didn't want somebody to come in and change everything because we had a really senior-driven class coming up. All those guys were great players. And, uh, you know, kudos to him for kind of, you know, listening to those guys and, and, and hiring a guy who was in staff and kind of keeping everybody together. Because I think, if he, honestly, if he didn't do that, I think a lot of guys would have left. And uh, who knows, maybe we, did, we wouldn't have been won the Big East that year. We wouldn't have, you know, accomplished some of the things that we'd accomplished as a, as a, as a team. So uh. You have a totally different job search process. You end up at Albany, right? Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you end up there? So Coach Sidlecki, our offensive coordinator at Wesleyan, he used to coach for Bob Ford, who was the head coach at Albany at the time. And Bob Ford... Legend. Bob Ford's a legend. Bob yeah. Ford... At the time he retired, was the winningest active head football coach in all of college football. He started with Albany football 40 years ago as an intramural program, built it up to D3 to D2, D1 AA. Now he's in the best conference in all of Division I AA. And has built that program from scratch. I worked for him in his last year before he retired. They built a brand new stadium and named it Bob Ford Field. He's one of the most incredible guys like I've ever been around. So Coach Sidlecki connected me with them. They brought me up to interview. $6,000 for the whole year to be the GA and video. 6000 $6, for the whole year. I got My paychecks were $150. You know, he offered me a job as the video coordinator and, and offensive GA. 
And I actually had just been offered a $30,000 job at Bates the day before. And I turned it down to go to Albany because I wanted to be at the highest level. Where'd you live when you were out there? So the head guy, Bob Ford, knew I didn't have a place to sleep, knew I couldn't afford rent. He knew what he was paying me. So he looks at me, he goes, I'm going to give you these keys, but you can't tell anyone and you can't get caught. And he gave me the keys to the press box, which sat on top of the, the old, the press box of the old stadium sat on top of the athletic facility. And I lived in the press box for nine months. Break this down for me. You had... Did you have a bed in, in the yeah, press box? So, like, where did you sleep? Like a big, like, kind of... Is it, like, raised up in the air, like, it, press it's, box? It's, it's literally, like, one of those mobile houses, like, sitting on top of the of the building. It's, like, a big trailer with, like, like three different rooms. Like, it's literally like a mobile home sitting on top that of the building. Insane. With big windows, right? So the first room is pretty big, has a TV, has heat, the big windows. It was, like, the president's suite. Just a big empty room. I put, right. my, I put my air mattress in there, all right? And then you walk down, in the middle is, like, where the press would sit. There's a lot of different, like, cubicles. Didn't really use that for anything. You walk down to the end. There's, like, a little boardwalk on top of the on top of the building. And you walk down to the end. It was a similar room, but it was a little bit smaller. In that last room, I put cardboard over the windows because right. no one could see that I was in there. So at night, and I made that into a walk-in closet. I had I had a hanging rack. I had my, my clothes folded on the floor on this one shelf. And I had a mirror in there, and I would go in there to change before I went out. That was my walk-in <laughs> closet. And because I needed to like change when it was when it was dark outside, I had to board the windows up so the police or no one could see the light coming. Didn't know anyone was using it. Wow. So I used to go out like if I was talking to a girl and thought like you know she might be interested in, in you know going home to one of each other's houses. She'd be like, "Where do you live?" And I'd be like, "I have an apartment on campus." <laughs> <laughs> I guess you thought that. I'd drive them up to this big athletic facility. We'd have to walk down, and I didn't even have a key to the building. There was just one door I knew you could rip open like by force. So she's like looking at this like, "Where the f- are we? This is not an apartment building." <laughs> and I'm ripping this door open. She's like, "What the, are you breaking in? Like, what is up?" The first door you come into is a locker room. So the first so thing you get like the whiff of like, yeah, you the get the sweat, whiff of this, all the, the sweat, everything. Oh my God. So. Walking through the locker room, and by then every girl must have thought that I was gonna murder them. Like I don't know how, and, and no girl ever turned around somehow. It's a testament to you, I guess. And somehow I had some game, right? Yeah. And so I would bring her up to the fourth floor. We'd go through this little narrow hallway, and I'm not kidding you. She'd be like, when they would get upstairs on the roof, they'd see the stars, and it would be that every time. Like they'd be like, oh, this is actually pretty nice. I mean, that's the thing for the kind of view you had. Yeah. To get that in New York, you can't get, get that. The press box in New York would cost you press at least twelve hundred Reach. Hold up, brother, let me get this thing straight. Can't just be another random rapper with a mixtape. I just went and put another beat inside a pine box. I just went and took another trip way out to Biscay. I love Miami because they always treat me so well. They used to see me nowhere. I used to pull them by saying I run for the team. Now they running their hands through my head. They used to never want to see my town. I, I, I got them coming to the east side now. Where they at? In the city where I reside now. When they move a little weight, let the D line now. Running track or running back. Gotta keep it moving, never running back. Never. We running the game and they running laps. That's another story for another track. See, from the sidelines, we gotta hustle because we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach. Yeah. Reach. Yeah.